Okay, continuing on. So the Apostle Peter and Paul were put to death in around 68 A.D. The Apostle John did not write his epistles between 20 and 28 years is when he wrote them. So that's interesting. So God's wisdom is displayed here. From what we know, uh, even historically mainly, about John, that he outlived all of the apostles, all of the twelve. From what we know, he was the only one that was not martyred. It's believed he lived to be uh, to his late 90s. Okay, All of the twelve foundation apostles and prophets and the epistles that were written by them is what we call scripture. So John was one of the twelve apostles. He was one of the first called to the ministry to go with Jesus. Okay. He was called to the ministry. So he was there in the beginning. Okay. They were to witness. See, they were to be a witness. They were to lay the foundation. They were to witness the three years or so of the ministry of Christ to testify to his life, his teachings, his miracles. See, that was their main job. Paul was not Judas's replacement, as some Calvinistic people will falsely state. And the reason they do that is they try to elevate Paul above the other apostles so they can propagate their faith alone, grace alone teachings that even Paul would refute. Remember, the apostle Peter said they twist uh, his writings, he said, to their own damnation, as they do all scripture. So those who try to elevate Paul as if he's the 13th, he's not. And furthermore, if you read Scripture, we see how God dealt with Paul. Paul had a tendency toward pride. He was brilliant. And therefore, he was humbled. God sent a thorn in his side, a stake is what it meant, to keep him in his place. And it was the demonic spirit of excessive buffeting and persecution. And Paul said he did it lest he was puffed up above measure. We can see a little hint of this. When he's sent by the Holy Spirit to the church leaders, to Peter, James, the apostles, he has to go down to them and present himself. And he comes out and says, but they added nothing to me. See, he felt he was equal to them, and he was, but he was not superior to them. And he had to submit to them. They didn't have to submit to him. His apostle. He said, and if I didn't, I would run in vain. I would preach in vain because God has established them and Christ sent me down there by revelation. That probably was a little irritating for Paul. And at the time, he was probably acquiring revelation that went further than many of these apostles. But he was not the foundation. He built on it. He built greatly on it. But if James and Peter and the apostles did not validate his ministry, all of known Christendom would have rejected Paul as a heretic. And the Lord knew that, and the Lord wanted him to be validated. Everything was going to be built on the foundation of the 12 apostles and the early prophets and disciples. Many were present during Jesus' life and ministry. Paul was not. Paul was not saved until at least six to eight years later. Even James, the half-brother of Jesus, he would be accepted, as we would say today, as the bishop of Jerusalem, to whom the twelve apostles 
and elders referred to. He could not be a replacement, see, because he was not saved. And the Lord appeared to him and called and saved him during the 40-day appearance after the resurrection. And yet later, he was highly regarded that even Peter answered to him on various occasions. Peter didn't do anything odd unless he told James about it. And James wasn't one of the 12. Isn't that interesting? The other James, he was killed very quickly. He didn't have time to have a long ministry. But again, that was God's wisdom. And so we see then that he couldn't be a replacement. The replacement was Matthias. You see, and as Peter understood before Pentecost, that he had to be replaced before the Spirit could come. And he tells us why, and we're going to read that scripture. Yet he and later Paul were accepted as equals when it came to apostolic authority. They complemented. They dealt with each other. They intermingled in their letters, and they did not compete with one another. There was no Paul party and James party. This is all nonsense. Okay. So the apostles had to validate the 12 true apostolic teaching. Anybody, even that the Lord appeared to like James and Paul, they still could not counter the 12 and they could not add to the foundation without their approval. So when Things were done, and when Paul did some strange things and dealing with the Gentile, it was James and Peter that spoke up, and the elders accepted him. See, they had to validate this, and they did. They understood his calling and ministry. So anyone, person that comes after the foundations laid, and Paul helped do this, has to build and has to confirm what we call Scripture. And John's going to be the last writer of Scripture. Okay? So there are no new prophets or apostles that add or take from the foundation. They are false shepherds and false prophets if they try to do it. Thus John waits out all of the true apostles and prophets of the first generation. Most of them walked and lived and experienced Jesus' life to some degree. Remember, there wasn't just the 12. There were 70 that Jesus sent, and they followed him. The writer of the Gospel of Mark, he was very young. But it appears that he experienced many of these things. Some people like to say that the Gospel of Mark should be called the Gospel of Peter because he was with Peter a lot. And he wrote a lot and got information from Peter. But he wrote it. And he was smart and wise enough. He was related to Peter. It's believed he was related to Barnabas. Okay? And God called him to do this. So he was a true prophet or elder later on. And there were many others. And when Jesus appeared to the apostles during the 40-day period, two to three times a more, he also appeared to many disciples, it said. See, many of them, with the women, had followed the ministry of Jesus for years and helped the women minister to them. So they were very familiar with the life and ministry of Christ. They were part of the foundation, and nobody was going to take that from them. So we say that James and 
the half-brother, and Paul could not say they met those conditions. Hundreds of people met it, but they didn't. Therefore, they were not of the twelve. They were not called to be of the twelve. Okay? So we see anything has to be building on the sound teaching that's there and has to be subject to its judgment. Okay? So popery and Mormonisms and the like, they're from false lying spirits and prophets. They're inspired by the devil because they add and take from Scripture or think they're superseding or they're coming with something better. That's a doctrine of demons that does this. So for 20 to 25 years, John waits. Some say that he lived to be almost 100. Some believe 97 or 8. Then God inspires him to write the Gospel of John. Isn't that interesting? And then the epistles of John. And then he merely transcribes the book of Revelation because it's a prophecy. He does not elaborate as Paul would. He does not give wisdom as Peter does. Their personalities and wisdom that God gives is not even used. He basically is copying it and just telling us what the angel told him. See? So he's not elaborating on it. And that's why it's a prophecy. All other scripture is not what we call a direct prophecy. All of God's word is a prophecy, but there's different types of prophecy. And there's prophecies of revelation and directness. And the epistles were written with the mind and personality of the apostles. And God permitted them to do that. He uses them. See? It didn't nullify anything. He didn't speak to them and have them speak to us as if they were a parrot or a tape recorder. But in the case of the book of Revelation, we could almost say if he had a tape recorder, he could have done the same thing. But he wrote it down, everything that he saw and heard and was instructed to. So we see John was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos It was like 50 miles from Ephesus offshore. John at that time was ministering in Ephesus when the persecution was coming against him and the church because of the word of God and his witness to Christ. The Roman emperor at this time insisting that people honor him as Lord and God. See, that was required and he was going to emphasize this where some of the other emperors weren't as strict on this, or they were willing to overlook it. See, the emperor and Rome established, when they took over people, they let them keep their religion. They didn't fight them, but they required them, whatever their religion was, to pray for the emperor and to recognize him as being a god or deity. And, of course, the true Jew and the true Christian could not do this because they did not believe this. So John and the Christian, they could only see Jesus Christ as the true Lord and God. So the emperor insisted at all address him as Lord and God. So some of the worst Christian persecutions came at this time. Okay. So some call the prophecy is the revelation from John. Some say it's a revelation to John. Others name it the revelation of Jesus Christ. But actually what it means is it's a prophecy from Jesus about him, about Jesus. But it's mainly coming as a prophetic 
insight into the end time events and the present dealings with the church. So the whole prophecy is not about Jesus. It all leads to him. It's from Jesus. Okay. He said, I have a message for you. But in those messages, he reveals himself and the Godhead and many things and wisdom that he wants the body of Christ to understand. Okay. So this prophecy is given 60, 65 years after the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven bodily. Some believe the seven churches show a period of time in the church age. Many, me included, I don't necessarily accept that. People like to go and say, well, this was the age of this and that. Well, at various times, all of it fit. I think in general, uh, we're in the church age, the New Testament age of grace, of the new covenant is what we are. And I believe when the Lord picked these seven churches, he had many to pick from. He picked it overall, what would be needed all through the church ages to give instruction and wisdom that mainly the church was going to deal with. False teachings, false teachers, heresies, persecutions. So he's going to use this at this time, okay? He picked a cross-section, and he had other churches in the same area that he didn't pick that were larger even. So it was relative to Christendom until he comes with us, and it's scripture to do what for us? The prophecy, because it is scripture, it still has its place. And what is its place? Second Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture. We definitely say the book of Revelation is a scripture. It's a scripture and it's the only one that God gives a threat to for those who handle it or mishandle it. Though the implication is all scriptures that way, but a special emphasis is one, don't tamper with this book. So he didn't even let John explain or interpret certain things. He felt later the Spirit would give what it needed to those generations. There's things in the book of Revelation that is implied will not be understood until the church at that time experiences those things. Daniel wanted to see end-time events, and he was told certain things. And then when he asked questions, the angel said, go your way. Those things are for the end. He was simply saying, they don't concern you. I've told you what you need to know for where you're at. But those things will be understood by that generation. So God is hiding the wisdom until it's needed for the various generational have to experience certain things. So all scripture, so we could say revelations included here, is given by inspiration of God. Therefore, all scripture is forms of prophecy. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. Well, we're going to find out when he talks to the seven churches, he's doing all of this. Okay. And the reason the man of God may be complete, perfected, mature, completely equipped for every good work. God intends spiritually mature Christians to have ministry. And ministry is work, and ministry is fruitfulness, and ministry bears 
obedience to the Lord. Any teaching that doesn't lead to that, you can throw out the door. It's useless. So all scripture. So revelation is scripture. It is prophecy. When Paul spoke of the gift of prophecy, he included exhortation. He included some teaching. He included what people call the salvation message, which actually there is no separate salvation message. It's just the beginning of the life of the Christian. It shows the person how to get saved and how to stay saved, how to get in Christ and how to stay there and not fall away. Gives instructions if he'll listen to it. But Paul highly regarded prophecy as being the greater of the ministries because it's the word ministry. So the fivefold uh, word ministries and foundations, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers, they have superiority over all ministries, miracles, healings, gifts. See, because these others are temporal for the earthly realm. But the word of God is eternal. The word of God can save a person and produce, give eternal life, produce it. Uh, signs and wonders cannot do this. Signs and wonders are temporal. They won't, they'll need no miracles or healings in heaven. But the word of God will go on forever in some form. For he is eternal. We'll always learn and know about the things of God. And the word of God does that. So prophecy simply means Word that is inspired by the Spirit. It don't have to be thus saith the Lord. That's one extreme. The book of Revelation is another extreme. But all of the epistles are prophecy. All scripture is. And so true preaching and teaching should come into prophecy. If the person's moved of the Lord. If he's not, he's given information without true wisdom. So people who are not called to teach and preach shouldn't be doing it. But all true Christians that mature, Paul said in Hebrews, is capable and should be teachers. See, what wasn't saying they had to teach a large group. They should be able to teach an individual, explain the gospel, and understand spiritual principles, discern between good and evil. All Christians, Jesus wants to come to that level. He said, it's enough if the disciple be as his master. He didn't say he's going to know everything like the master. He meant as the master obeys the father, it's enough that the mature Christian learns how to obey the Lord. That makes him mature. And then he has spiritual insight into the word of God that the spirit gifts him. So anytime a person, if they're really called of God, not many are, if they're teaching, exhorting, preaching, they should have prophecy at times. It means that God should inspire them. If he does that, eventually something's wrong. They need to question whether they're called. Maybe they shouldn't. Even the Apostle James said that not many of you should be teachers. And he mainly applied to stupid people. Then he called fools. And why did he call them fools? Because you think faith alone is going to save you. Well, there's no such faith alone doctrine in Scripture. Spiritual faith, true faith, produces works and obedience. If it doesn't, it's a false grace and a false. And they were saying it three times, James reproves them. Faith without works is dead. It's useless. Well, they were teaching that. They were teaching that you could have faith in Jesus, confess him, but have no fruit and no works, and you're still a Christian. Doesn't that sound very familiar 
today. Faith alone. There's not one scripture. Paul never says faith alone. That's a heresy. And the reason why some of the writers want to do away with the book of James, because he says something very plain. A man is not justified by faith alone, but by works also. He makes it so plain. You can twist it. You can jump around it. You can do everything. He means just what he says. Well, they got to do away with that to propagate their lying heresy. And they have to distort it. And let me tell you, James was there before Paul. Uh, and Paul didn't correct James. Paul didn't come along. If he did, he was a false prophet because James was part of the foundation of the early church. He was one of the prophets. He was one of the apostles, equal in his ministries to 12. And they recognized him. If you read the scripture, you'd almost come to the conclusion that James was the head of the church. And it wasn't Peter. Peter was the chief spokesman at times. But we always find Peter referring to James, explaining to James. Isn't this interesting? He was accepted for his wisdom, and he was called to be an apostle. How do we know he is an apostle? Because the apostle Paul tells us. Isn't that interesting? He calls him an apostle. So so much for the James and Paul being in conflict with each other. And it was James and Peter that recognized the apostleship of Paul. So it's interesting how this works. Okay, that's God's wisdom in these matters. So these churches, these seven churches that the Lord picked, they are now in the country we call Turkey, in the western part of the country. But a larger church almost the largest at times, when it started out, Paul had a lot to do with it. Antioch was a little to the east, but still in Turkey, it was larger and not far away. And then there was a large gathering in Rome, and of course, there was a large Jewish Jerusalem church. But the Lord didn't pick those. See, he looked at the cross section, and in his wisdom, he could deal with them and say, this will be used later. This will teach people, see, all scripture. And he knew the main problems that the churches and the body of Christ would have to deal with in a demonic world and how they would have to fight lies and things that would distort the word of God and to bring forth the truth and keep the truth where it's supposed to be, okay? So these are what we call the things that are. This goes on through chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, and the last verse there, 22, okay? Those churches are of the present church age, the New Testament covenant, the age of grace, we could say. There's several words we interpret for that. And so it shall be until the return of the Lord bodily as king and judge. And when he sets up a millennium, he restores Israel among the nations. That's not the church then. That's going to be on a different system. It's not the church that we know it. He's going to remove what's left of that and deal with Israel and the nations in a different way. But this is the age we're under. This is the covenant we're under. Okay, so there is only one church, though, remember. It's the true body of Christ. 
It's wherever two or three true Christians gather to worship and fellowship. That's where the body of Christ is, and that's where church is, okay? So we will stop, we see, why will we stop at the end of chapter 3? Because if we look at chapter 4, right, when he finishes chapter 3, look at chapter 4, the first verse. After these things, after what things? The things that are. Those that are the present tense is what Jesus is talking to. I'm dealing with you now. I'm dealing with you through the last apostle. I'm giving a message to the whole church age, through the last apostle, the one who was there in the beginning, who helped lay the foundation. He's going to finish it. And what is he saying here? After these things, after the church age, after the new covenant, church age, the time of grace, and the preaching of the gospel to all the world, he said, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice I heard sounded like a trumpet. And then he begins to get into future events. See, the things that are, now these things, through the whole rest of the book, will not deal with the seven churches, will not deal with basically the church age. It's going to deal with future prophecies up to the end time. So that's why we will stop uh, at the end of chapter 3. So remember the seven churches and various parts of the Roman Empire each had gatherings. We need to remember this. When we say church, there was no big cathedral in each one of these churches. Hundreds of years before buildings went up, okay? There were no buildings. People gathered in their homes and small assemblies. That was the church for the first century or two, okay? Whatever was left over from the real church, okay? And so we see is there were home gatherings and meetings. And so when he's addressing each church, he's addressing the whole area. And that's why he commends some and he reproves others. He encourages some in their walk with the Lord, and he informs others they're not in the Lord, and the danger is coming upon him. So he's speaking to the whole area. As today, the majority of churches are false, and the Christians are false. So most of them have no lampstand. So they're not churches. God doesn't deal with them as a church. Where the Holy Spirit is not in control, where there's not spiritual elders to disciple and mature, and listen to the Spirit, there can be no viable church, okay? We're at a time when the city on the hill, the church, is lights, it's gone out, basically. And the candles are left. See, we need to remain candles like Noah was and like Lot was. So even if churches as a whole and large groups disappear, there'll always be a remnant, see? And the scripture says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. If there's three people at the time of the second coming serving the Lord, you've got the church. And hell will not prevail against it. So that's what it means. It's not talking about the religious institutional buildings and cathedrals throughout the world that call themselves Christians. Okay. And so there was no church building. There was no permanent structures. For a good reason, for at least two to three Christians, when they gather together, God considers that church. He says, I'm in your midst. He's in a way that he's not for the individual. 
he graces the individual, and under persecution, he can extend grace. But he wills for the two and three to worship so they can be the exchange of ministry and edification and warning and so forth. So there has to be ministry and fellowship, or it's not the true body of Christ present. See, it's his presence, and there has to be a lampstand. The Holy Spirit has to recognize that, okay? Today, no church building, no cathedral, no auditorium is the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ is a living spiritual assembly. When they depart, if they're using a building, you know, if Christians are using a home, or if there's enough true Christians that have a building and have a lampstand, then that's wonderful. But that doesn't make it the church, okay? When they depart, the building has no spiritual value. The Lord's angels don't stay there and guard the place. The Holy Spirit doesn't look around and say, oh, isn't this a holy place? It has no spiritual value, good or evil. See? Because the church is a living, national, spiritual being. The body of Christ. Okay? That's what makes it the church. So if you can't gather and have no building, and you want to gather down at the river, then that's where church is. And when you depart, church ceases as far as the assembly. The individuals go about their way serving the Lord, okay? So there's no holy buildings. They have no intrinsic spiritual value. See, many people, you expect it out of Catholicism. You don't expect it out of some of the Protestants. But they're, they're just as superstitious as they are. Oh, we have the sanctuary. Oh, we don't do this in the sanctuary. A bunch of nonsense. See? God is not specially in the sanctuary. See, this is all taken from Roman Catholicism. Much of the adulterous systems moved into the Protestant systems. And we still have it today. A lot of the symbolism, if you study it, you'll see came from Roman Catholicism. And yet the very churches will refute Roman Catholicism but they still hold on to the traditions and many things. So, oh, I wouldn't do this in the church. Like, it emanates with the Shekinah. That's a bunch of nonsense, okay? See, people that are superstitious are tied to the natural realm and the demonic realm. They have no spiritual understanding of God. God fills the very universe. God is everywhere, but he doesn't reveal himself everywhere. He reveals himself in the body of Christ. He does not reveal himself in a building, a cathedral, or anywhere else. Okay? Not in his spiritual nature and wisdom. He uses nature. He sustains nature. He sustains all the laws of the universe by his very being. But he's separate from it. See? He's not it in itself. But the only place... The Lord Jesus and the Spirit are in the believers or in heaven. Every other place, he doesn't manifest himself. See, the dead, those who don't know the Lord, he's closer to them than their breath. But they have his no life of him because he does not give them life. Yet the believer has him as life. Eternal life abides in them. So it's where God chooses to manifest his presence. But there is no place that people can get away from God. See? He knows all, sees all, and is everywhere. Okay? So we can say the world elements, anything of the natural realm, is neutral. 
It has no intrinsic spiritual value. It's what we do with things that make them important and spirit. If we have money, it's money is neutral. I mean, people say, well, the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah, well, it's the root of many evils. It didn't say it's the root of all evil. That's another perversion. It says it's the root of many evils. But it's also done for good. The Christian's told to help and give, and you can't manifest the love of Christ unless you give something. You give of your ministry, and a, and part of your ministry is what you have and who you are. And the Christian's told to help the poor, the weak, uh, help other Christians. Well, if you ain't got money at times, you can't help them because that's their need. So if we use it properly, then God says, I sanctify it. I honor it. If we don't, it's neutral. If we use it for evil, for greed and covetousness and for pleasures and sins, then it's evil. But in itself, it's neutral. Paul said all things are pure in themselves. See, they have no spiritual value. It's what the wicked or the righteous do with things that make them good or evil. Okay? But in themselves, they do not retain good or evil. So the kingdom of God, we need to understand, is basically only manifested in two places. We can say where it's clearly expressed. In the midst of true Christian fellowship, which is the body of Christ, and in heaven itself. It's not manifested anywhere else that clearly. The world is of the God of this world, Satan, the flesh and evil and sin. He's not in that. Not in relationship. Oh, he sees it all. He experiences all. Nothing does he miss. It grieves him, and he stores up wrath and judgment to deal with it eventually. But the only place he reveals himself and communes and has spiritual life with is either in heaven or in the true body of Christ. That's it. Not a building. He doesn't go hide in a building somewhere. Okay. And so we see the true church or the body of Christ is a spiritual nation. It's a spiritual priesthood. The true will of God and Christ on earth is only done in Christians. Remember this. God overrides the nations. He uses evil spirits to bring down nations and punish each other. And he permits them and sets the limits to their power. But he doesn't live in them. Okay? He understands evil. He adjusts it. He restrains it. See, that's his right to do these things for the good of nations and for the individual and for his own wisdom. He withholds judgment when he can. At other times, he can't. His holiness demands justice. It's like someone said years ago, when our country was going through different wicked stages, he said, well, if God doesn't judge soon, he'll have to apologize to Sodom Gomorrah. They implying that God's wrath has to be manifested at times. He has a limit to what he's going to put up with before he judges certain things. In this life, and in the next, okay? So we are a priesthood, a nation. The will of God is only done, basically, and his kingdom is only in the Christians. All else is under the power of God, but it's under the power of the devil where evil and wickedness prevails. So most political countries and systems, most earthly religious systems and denominations, they're under the power of the devil. 
See, because they're separate. If Christ is not ruling in them, they're under the power of the devil. And princes, demon princes, overpower nations. And they'll even war with each other for premacy. Hard to believe, but it's in their corrupt nature. But God sets the limits. He raises nations up and he puts nations down. And he uses evil messengers to do it. When he punished Israel, he sent wicked nations to do it. And when Israel repented, he turned and punished those nations. See, that was his right to do that. They didn't do him any favor. God is the great economist. He doesn't waste anything. Even the wicked have a purpose. There will be a memorial. The scripture says the smoke of their torment shall ascend to heaven before the lamb and the angels. The wicked angels and men, the smoke. It didn't say their presence or them meant that their presence, the smoke shows they're being judged and tormented because they sinned against a holy God. And it says that's going to go up before God and the angels forever. So see, God doesn't waste anything. So what we're seeing is only in heaven by angels and the redeemed is God's will perfectly done. Here in the true Christian, where Christ is Lord, then God's will is being done. Okay? And so all wicked nations and demons, they are consigned ultimately to the lake of fire. But thy will be done on earth as it's in heaven. It will not be complete in the church. The church is still being perfected and matured. And only when God removes it will it be as in heaven perfectly done as angels always obey the Lord. So we're seeing perfectly that when the Lord comes to take his own, he'll set up a kingdom for a thousand years and toward the outward time, uh, people begin to rebel, yet wickedness will only be inside people. Here, the only true righteousness and kingdom is in the body of Christ. At that time, it's going to end up being the reverse. See, in the millennium, God's not going to permit open rebellion, but it will brew in people's hearts, and then God will let Satan loose to draw it out of them. But see, we're in the reverse now. The only place the kingdom of God is and true righteousness is in the body of Christ. But he's going to do that to teach the world forever of his holiness. And he's going to make a short work upon the earth. What's 7,000 years compared to never-ending eternity? Lord, give us wisdom. Give us application as we get into the book of Revelations to see where it applies not only to the age we live in, but to our personal lives. In Jesus' name, amen.